0: Friends, and welcome to episode 17 of You Don't Know Jack. I am your host, Sarah DiMio, bringing you everything you need to know in the career of the great Jack Nicholson. I know I am the worst, I have let you down immensely, I have been on kind of an unintentional hiatus. It's been a crazy holiday season. The first few weeks of 2021 haven't been that much easier. So it all just got to the point where it all dominoed and I was unable for the past few weeks to put out new episodes. But I'm back. We're getting things under control. We're all in this together. And I'm happy to say it looks like we are back on track now. So... We are now entering into 1973. Jack is now a bankable star. He is far from the struggling actor looking to get work that he was during the first decade of his time in movies. He is now being sought after. In our last episode, I reviewed 1972's The King of Marvin Gardens, which features Ellen Burstyn in the role of Sally and... As we know, like I mentioned in that episode, Ellen Burstyn is probably best known for playing Chris McNeil one year later in The Exorcist. Well, did you know that in early nineteen seventy three Jack Nicholson was up for the role of Father Damien Karras in The Exorcist, a role that would go to Jason Miller, and other big name stars were up for that role as well-one of them was Paul Newman? But the director of The Exorcist, William Friedkin, years later said that he had an instinct to not cast a star in that role. So he went with actor and playwright Jason Miller. And I would have to say it was the right decision because I don't think any other actor could have been able to play such a dark, brooding representation of Father Karras than -hmm. Jason Miller did. So 1973 would have different things in store for Jack, starting with a new relationship. And that, of course, was with Angelica Houston. The two met at a birthday party at Jack's house in the Hollywood Hills, and they would become one of the celebrity it couples of the 70s. And also in 1973 would be Jack's next project following The King of Marvin Gardens It would be 1973's The Last Detail, directed by Hal Ashby, screenplay by Robert Towne. Robert Towne is a name we've heard before, and we're going to hear again very soon. Towne is primarily a screenwriter and director, but we most recently know him from an acting role, from when he played Richard in 1971's Drive, he said, directed by Jack. The screenplay for The Last Detail is adapted from the 1969 novel of the same name. And full disclosure, I am not familiar with this novel. I only know some of the cliff notes of it. So I can only speak on my impressions of the film by itself. I wouldn't be able to give any comparison to the novel. But I will start out by saying that the script is very clever. If you look at the genre, you'll notice that it's listed as a comedy drama. And I would say it definitely leans more to the side of drama. And as far as comedy goes, there's no knee slapper, laugh out loud moments. The comedic moments are witty. It's an ironic type of humor, the kind that has you rooting for your main characters. And with that being the case, When I watched the film in preparation for this episode, I realized that this role for Jack is really one of the early roles that solidifies what he is known for. Jack is not often the hero, as it were. But also, he's not often the villain, although he does make a fantastic villain. But Jack Nicholson, I think more often than anything else, is the anti-hero, a flawed person, maybe even a criminal or a loose cannon, but on the side of angels, as far as the story being presented goes. The film stars Jack as Billy Badass Badusky, Otis Young as Mulhall or Mule, and a very young Randy Quaid as Meadows. Pretty much everybody knows who Randy Quaid is now, but at this time, the last detail would be his first major role, having only been in the movie business for about two years prior to that, and only in very minor parts. So, our producer, Gerald Ayers, bought the rights to the novel in 1969. The role of badass was written for Jack. Specifically, Robert Towne began adapting the novel after returning home from the set of Drive, he said, and he was tailoring the characters of Badass for Jack to play and Mule for actor Rupert Cross. It was a little tricky, to say the least, for Ayers to sell the script to Columbia Pictures, and it was not because of the bad and often illegal behavior exhibited throughout the script by Navy service members. No, it was because of the frequent use of the word fuck. Now, I don't know exactly if this is true for the finished product. It's not something I made a point of to sit there and count. But apparently in Robert Towns' script, in the first seven minutes, there were 342 fucks. And at this time in Hollywood, this really was a serious enough thing that Columbia Pictures was considering not distributing the film unless it was changed. But Robert Town refused to tone it down, citing that this is how people talk, especially when they're angry or agitated and they're powerless. It reminded me of a bit a few years ago by the comedian Louis Black, where he was saying, there is no such thing as bad language. Bad language, quote unquote, are words that we use so that we don't kill somebody. I don't remember the bit verbatim, but I do remember he also said something like, like when a person who has worked at a job for 30, 40 years finds out he's been laid off, he's lost his pension, He won't be able to afford his expenses, mortgage, and whatnot. He gets home, sits down on the couch, puts his head down and says, Oh, pussy feathers. Sassafras, sassafras, sassafras. The point being here, of course, that the F word is a very natural word, especially in the case of The Last Detail, where they're all men and... They are literally sailors. There is, in fact, a reason why curse like a sailor is a common expression. So this issue, though, left Gerald Ayers and Robert Towne in a stalemate with Columbia Pictures. And it didn't finally get the go-ahead until Jack, who, like we said, was a bankable star at that point, got involved. Now, admittedly, When I first read that, and even now, I don't really know specifically what that means. I don't know if they just mean when Jack got involved in the sense of officially signed on to do the movie, and when Columbia saw that they had a bankable star, they decided to give it the green light, or did he get involved literally in this fight that Ayers and Town were having with Columbia? did he step in somehow i don't know i don't know what the specifics were of that situation but what i do know was that pre-production of this thing would become even more complicated because by this time the script was finished production was then stalled for 18 months while jack had to go film the king of marvin gardens so while this was happening Another producer comes to Gerald Ayers and says that he could get Burt Reynolds in the role of badass, Jim Brown in the role of mule, and are you ready for this? David Cassidy in the role of Meadows. Ayers said no. So they didn't fight him on it and they agreed to to wait until Jack had rapped with the King of Marvin Gardens. For fear that if they tried to push forward with it, Ayers could just take it to another studio. And, well, after all they'd been through already, who needs that? The next issue would be filming locations. Director Hal Ashby wanted to shoot on location at the Naval Base in Norfolk, Virginia. And the Brig up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The U.S. Navy said no to that. But the Canadian Navy was willing to grant them permission to shoot on one of their bases. So by this point, it's August of 1972, Hal Ashby and his casting director, Lynn Stalmaster, go up to Toronto to look at this naval base, and they were happy with what they saw. And what they ended up doing for the opening shots, those shots weren't done on the naval base. Those were actually shot at Canadian Forces Base Borden, which is a training base for the Canadian Air Force. Now, let me talk for a second about how Randy Quaid got the role of Meadows. It's interesting because physically, he does not match the character description in the novel, and that was by the director's choice. It came down to some other actors also of note, Robert England, AKA Freddy Krueger of Nightmare on Elm Street fame, he was up for that part it eventually though came down to randy quaid and john travolta now the character of meadows in the novel is a small impish and this is a quote here helpless little guy he's a weakling and on top of that a screw-up but hal ashby decided to go a different route when casting Meadows. And his reasons, I think, translate so beautifully on film. Ashby would decide on Randy Quaid, who is six foot four, mind you, but keep the character's personality traits. So there was an innocence to him to see this good-for-nothing, overgrown man-child. I really think he was going for the lovable loser type. And it works. I think it really comes across perfectly. But also, as I mentioned, when Robert Towne started adapting the script, he wrote Badass for Jack and Mule for Rupert Cross. Now, sadly, Rupert Cross might not be a name you're familiar with. I wasn't familiar with him. Just as production was set to begin, Cross was diagnosed with cancer. So director Hal Ashby postponed photography for a week to let him deal with the news and also to let him decide if he wanted to continue on with the film. He decided not to. And he died shortly thereafter, on March 5th, 1973, at the age of 45. But before all of that would play out, if I could just shift focus back onto pre-production, it's like finally we were all set up to get started with principal photography, and then yet another major curveball. So now the director and casting director are in a scramble because Mule is not a small role. He's the other lead opposite Jack's character. But that is when they found actor Otis Young. So these decisions in casting led Ashby to do something which is not typically done in movies, which is to shoot the scenes chronologically. Movies hardly ever do that unless it's for some reason necessary because under normal circumstances, it's just wildly impractical. But the reason they did this for the last detail was so Randy Quaid and Otis Young would be able to ease into their roles. Quaid because he was still so inexperienced at the time and he was nervous. And Otis Young because he was just recently cast as a last minute replacement in a lead role. So now... With all the varying crises having been averted, what do you say we dive right in? The film opens at the U.S. Naval Base in Norfolk, Virginia. We see a young sailor running through the facility looking for Petty Officer Badusky. that's badass, and Petty Officer Mulhall, Mule. He finally finds Badass in a common room, asleep, or should I say, passed out in a chair. And this young sailor tells Badass that the MAA, the Master at Arms, needs to see him right away because he has new work orders. And then he finds Mule in the laundry, ironing what looks like a shirt, already looking agitated. The MAA needs to see him right away badass and mule in different locations, each have the same response, which is that the MAA can go fuck himself. But they each begrudgingly pull themselves together and arrive at the MAA's office. So what I noticed right out the gate, and why I noticed this was confirmed to me when I read up on the movie, was the initial look of the cinematography. It had a look to it that was almost low budget, even though the movie itself was not low budget, but not particularly high either. It was around $2.3 million. But I noticed a lot of natural light, also just the interior light from the facility where they were filming, like the ugly yellow light inside the laundry room. And then I read that this was another thing that was by design. Hal Ashby had promoted Michael Chapman, who was a camera operator, to director of photography. They worked on this particular look to create a documentary style feel to the film. And it works. It has that look of, like I said, a low budget. I want to say like an eight millimeter style film. It had that look and I guess grainy is the word that I'm looking for. And I do think that it gave the film a very raw, real feel to it, which I appreciated and I think is very necessary for a story like this. The Master at Arms is played by Clifton James. And when I watched this movie a few weeks back, after having not seen it in years, I looked at Clifton James and I just kept thinking, I know this guy where have I seen him before? So I looked up his other credits. And I think people who enjoy Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor movies will like this. Clifton James plays the sheriff in Silver Streak, which would come out a few years later in 1976. But those of you who know, know who I'm talking about. Sheriff Chauncey. When Gene Wilder walks into his office and he's at his desk, watching some cops and robbers shoot 'em up show on his little black and white TV. And I think that's why I didn't recognize him right away because the master at arms is a vastly different character, though it is clear that he has a touch of humor, but he's all business. When Badass and Mule arrive in the office, the MAA gives them the news that they've pulled temporary shore patrol duties and now they're chasers. In other words, their job is to escort a prisoner, which is Meadows, from the base at Norfolk up to Portsmouth Naval Prison. And he explains to them that this kid, Meadows, has been sentenced to eight years plus a dishonorable discharge. Badass and Mule's eyes widen a little bit and Badass straight up asks, eight years? What, did he kill the old man? And what I did notice At the moment those words leave his mouth there's this awkward pause, like just an instant regret. MAA sits down at his desk and badass asks him, so who did he kill? And the MAA tells him he didn't kill anybody. It was a robbery. So Badass asks him, how much did he get? The MAA tells him forty dollars. Forty dollars. Eight years and a dishonorable discharge over $40. Turns out Meadows had been trying to lift this $40 from a polio donation box. And the MAA goes on to explain that polio is the old man's old lady's favorite do-gooder project. The old man being the most senior officer, of course. Now. They've been given a whole week to deliver Meadows to the prison. But as this is only coming from Virginia and Portsmouth is up in New Hampshire, Badass realizes that it only takes about two days to get there. So as they're leaving the office, he says to Mule, they have that full week regardless. So if they get there in only two days, that gives them the rest of the week and their per diem money to spend on the way back. And that's back through boston new york dc so they'll have all that time to do all the things that navy sailors do when they're out and about on their own so badass smiles with that smile of his and mule starts to smile and suddenly this detail doesn't sound quite as terrible as it first did so meadows is brought to the base in handcuffs The MAA gives Badass and Mule each a gun and an armband that reads SP for Shore Patrol. Meadows towers over the both of them, but he keeps his head down, speaks only when spoken to, and it's always just a very quiet yes sir or no sir. They bring Meadows out to the car that's taking them to the bus station. It's winter, so it's frigidly cold outside. When they get to the bus station, they get inside as quickly as possible. Badass and Mule each get a cup of coffee. And as they're waiting, the three of them are sitting on a bench at the station. And this is the first time that we see the guys speak to Meadows. And it started out as a simple question, but it gave a glimpse into just how this kid's mind works. You have to go to the head. No, sir. Be sure now, Meadows, because from now on, whenever you do go to the head, one of us is gonna have to go with you. I'm not gonna kill myself. Well, I don't think so, but you know how it is, Meadows. Yes, sir, but I don't need to use the head anyway. Let's go. Kill itself, huh? Huh? As they're walking to the bus, Meadows is in front of Badass and Mule, his hands still cuffed in front of him. And it took me forever to notice this. I definitely did not notice it the first time I ever saw this movie, which was back when I was in my early teens. It's not like it's a blink and you'll miss it type of thing, it's more that it's just so subtle. That you don't even realize that anything is happening we see meadows from behind and he starts to slow down his pace they go past this kiosk like a newsstand where there's various candy bars and other things on display up in front meadows slows down right in front of this display almost coming to a full stop but then he's led onward towards the bus the three of them walk out of the frame And we have just a short lingering shot of this kiosk. The next scene right after that, they step onto the Greyhound bus. Badass tells Meadows to go all the way to the back. So if you've ever been on one of these types of buses, not just a Greyhound bus, but any of the big ones that do long distance trips, you might remember what the very last seat looks like. It's basically a bench. Up against the back wall, right up to the tiny closet that has a toilet and a sink. So they all go back of the bus. These three grown men are squeezed onto this very last seat on the bus. They're not making a scene, but understandably, they are kind of a sight to behold. So much so that this one little kid on the bus pops his head up, jaw wide open, and straight up stares at them for a few seconds. Badass notices this, and the kid slowly slinks back down into his seat. But then Badass pulls out the key to the handcuffs and starts taking them off of Meadows' wrists, explaining to him that the U.S. Navy believes that in a situation where you're on public transportation, you're permitted to have your hands free so that if the bus should get into an accident, you can use your hands to protect yourself. And when he removes them, you can clearly see these deep, deep red marks on Meadows' wrists. Now, obviously, nobody thinks the bus is going to get into an accident. We know badass took the cuffs off so that people wouldn't stare. I'm fairly positive, too, though, that this is not a rule that the Navy had at any point in time. I could be wrong. I just haven't been able to verify this either way. But when I look at the list of rules that most police departments have when it comes to handcuffs, they all say that if a prisoner is in transport, they must remain on at all times. And I get that this is a different situation, that they're out in public and there's these different varying factors, but I'm inclined to believe that the same rules apply. they're riding along though meadows we notice is eating a candy bar mule asks him where did you get that and meadows response i had it with me okay okay then a minute later he's got something else some little bag of candies and mule just looks at him this time and meadows looks back and says without even being prompted I had it with me. I start to get the impression at this point they're on to him. They don't know how he did it or where, but something is up. So then they need to transfer over to a train to take him up to Portsmouth. And as they're at the train station, we see the same thing happen again. But it's a little more noticeable this time. Meadows has the handcuffs on again. And he's lumbering quietly along, as he does. They go over to a little coffee shop inside the station. And when they get up to the counter, Mule asks Meadows if he wants anything. Meadows says no. And this time we see it happen. As Badass is out of sight, and Mule is paying the man at the counter, Meadows quietly stands in front of the counter. We can't see what he grabs, but his hands slowly creep over, grabs the first item right in front of him, slips back up into his pocket as if nothing even happened. And then we see it again. As they're about to board the train, an older woman has a cart with bags on it, which appear to be groceries. She's got vegetables and things like that in there. She's having trouble moving the cart. So Mule offers to move it for her with Meadows right next to him the whole time. He takes the cart, pushes it out to the hallway, and the woman thanks him. But as he's doing it, we can see Meadows lift what appeared to be a couple of large carrots. All one move, just swipes him up, right up from the cart, right up into the sleeve of his coat. Nobody even notices. As they're on the train, they've settled into their seats. It's significantly more comfortable compared to how they were damn near spooning each other right next to the shitter on the Greyhound bus. They're at the window. Badass and Mule are next to each other. Meadows is facing them. The handcuffs have been removed again. And they're all smoking. Mule and Meadows each have a cigarette. Badass is smoking a cigar. So they get acquainted. Listen, man. Call me Mule. Everybody else does. You, sure. okay? Sure. Mule. Yes, sir. They always used to have trouble with my name too. But Dusky always wanting to call me badass. Badass. I am the badass. Badass. What the chief said, Motto, is about your getting uh, eight years and a dishonorable discharge for stealing $40. I didn't get no $40. You didn't get it? No. They caught me right while I was trying to lift it from the box. I didn't get it. <clears throat> Jesus Christ. You're to tell me they gave you eight years and a DD for $40 and you didn't even get it? <laughs> Boy, they really stuck it to him, didn't they, Mule? <laughs> they sure how it did. <laughs> Boy, they really stuck it to you, kid. Yeah, yes, sir. Stick it in and break it off. Buddy eases off of him, and he tells Meadows that eight years doesn't necessarily mean eight years. Like he can knock two off just for good behavior. So that's six right there, which is mildly comforting to Meadows, but not really because it would still be six. But a little later on, Meadows falls asleep and Badass nudges Mule and points down at Meadows' sleeve. The carrots that he grabbed from that old lady's cart are just peeking out of his sleeve. So Badass wakes him up, begins to instruct him to lift up his sleeve. But right as Meadows looks down, he gasps and jumps up and starts running towards the end of the train car. And this is a crowded train, so he's pushing through, jumping over other passengers. Badass and Mule jump up after him. Badass shouts for him to halt, which he doesn't, until he gets right to the door of the train car he stopped by just another passenger coming through from the opposite way so they catch up to him and they lead him back over to their seats and meadows is having a bit of a breakdown at this point he's crying and he's rambling but it's important to pay attention to what he's saying though Because while it might sound like just incoherent nonsense, a lot is said in there that can get lost. It took me a number of viewings to really get it. But as Badass and Mule take him back over to his seat and he's carrying on, Badass is kind of patting him on the leg, trying to quiet him down. He's like, okay, okay, come on, Meadows, be a man pay attention to what Meadows tells them. He says he always just takes things. Things he doesn't need, things he doesn't care about. There was something he took one time to build a model car, even though he's never built a model car. Just random crap, just because it was there. And he's saying, too, he had money on the books. You can check. But he had to give it all up in the forfeiture. So what he's admitting to in this moment is that this was always something he did, compulsively. So we realize, if we haven't already, Meadows is not so much a criminal as he is a kleptomaniac. And the thing I think to keep in mind also is his reaction just now when he got caught. It's a very natural reaction, especially considering He just woke up and in that moment, you're kind of on autopilot. And so he looked down and saw the carrots and saw that he was caught and he acted on instinct. And that instinct is run. But after he finally calms down, Mule turns to Badass and says, this kid is crazy. And Badass says, yeah, he needs a fucking psychiatrist. But Mule says, well, what does that do for us now? right now we have a crazy person on our hands so badass says let's get off in dc we'll walk him around until he cools off now when they get off in dc they find out that the last train doesn't leave until 10 30 so they have plenty of time to go eat something so they're walking through the city streets in the frigid cold meadows has the handcuffs on again before they find a place to stop into. Badass has them go around to an alley so he can remove the handcuffs again. And I bring this part up really only because it makes me laugh. As I said, it's below freezing. Badass is trying to turn the key on the handcuffs and he gets one of them. And he's trying to get the other one and he holds up Meadows' other arm. And Meadows isn't moving. Badass is the one kind of jerking the kid's arm around as he's trying to get this other cuff off and he even says to him hold still meadows and that just strikes me as funny I think partly because I'm a lifelong resident of Connecticut so I get the misery of it being so cold outside and how it can make you devoid of any common sense but right after that they go into a diner and before they had gotten there when they were looking at a different place Meadows had mentioned, do you think they melt the cheese on the burgers? I like my cheese melted. So when they're in this diner, they each get a burger. Badass asks Meadows, is the cheese melted enough for you? Meadows says it's fine. Badass looks at it, lifts up the bun and says, it's not melted at all, which it wasn't. and just looks like a cold slice of cheese. Badass tells him, send it back. Meadows says it's fine, but Badass says, send it back. You should have it the way you want it. So Badass calls the waiter over and tells him to melt the cheese. So at first, it seems like kind of a dick move, as Badass and Mule are each enjoying their burgers while Meadows doesn't have anything. But, but right after that, there's a shot of Badass and Mule. They're each chugging a malted. And they look at Meadows, who has his burger now with the cheese melted and his mouth full, and he says, it's good. Adorable. This overgrown toddler having one happiness before he is sent to the brig. Then before they leave D.C., Badass decides that they should all go get a beer. Meadows says he's not old enough. But badass says everybody's old enough for a beer and that's when they stop into this place that badass says that he knows but when they walk in there's a different bartender there and this bartender refuses to serve them because he can tell that meadows isn't old enough I 30 cents worth of beer and a glass and the same from the shipmates here it don't work you no more Let me see your ids how come because this kid ain't old enough. Listen, pal. Listen yourself, pal. The law says I have to serve him and says I can't well, I'll tell serve you what him. you better do, Mr. Citizen Bartender. You take your beers and ram them up your ass sideways. You dig it? Whoa there, sunshine. We're going, so you can take your hand off that horse cock you got stashed under the bar. How do you know I don't have something with a little more bark to it? Ho, ho, ho. This redneck is talking about firearms well i know that you ain't got nothing but wood under there my man because i happen to be in here one night when a certain sailor got it laid up the side of his fucking head what do you think about that redneck boss would lose his license for sure if i serve that i'm gonna kick your ass around the block for drill man you try it and i'll call the shore patrol i am the Shore patrol, motherfucker. I am the motherfucking shore patrol. Give this man a beer. I don't want a beer anyway. You're gonna have a fucking beer! Come on, man! No, I feel like one right Come on, man. Come on. Come on. Come on, let's go. Come on, man. But after that moment of madness, the three of them sort of scamper out of the bar and across the street. Which only supports my theory that at the end of the day, all men, regardless of how tough they act, are a bunch of giggly girls. I am a badass. <laughs> yeah, uh, off yeah what? You're a badass. A what? A badass. what? A even D. Well, you got a belly full of beer. Come on, kid. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Did you see that cracker asshole? And the law says that I gotta serve him. I, I thought he was gonna have a fucking heart attack. Get he shit out of He him, was scared, man. He was ready to go. So, rather than drinking at a bar, they get a bunch of six packs, and the three of them go get drunk in an alley. And at this point, it's night. And just as a little aside here as this scene opens badass raises a toast he says this is to batman superman and there was a third one i might have been the green lantern or something like that but it's worth noticing when i realized it because it's easy to miss it at first i was just like he just toasted batman now slight problem they have missed the last train for the day so What are three sailors to do but to buy more six-packs and find a hotel for the night? It becomes sort of a bonding experience, just the three of them hanging out drinking in a cramped hotel room. We find out Badass was a signalman, and he shows Meadows how to do some of these signals. He tells him, stand up, just think of your body as a clock. And Meadows is copying all the moves that Badass does. And he's instantly good at it, much to the surprise of Badass. And it doesn't seem all that important at the time, but you'll find out later on that it is worth remembering because it does come up again. And also that night, though, Meadows asks Badass why he got so mad at that guy at the bar. And then Badass asks him, don't you ever get mad at anybody? Hey, you don't never get mad at nobody. You're just a pussy. I do too get mad. Did you ever get mad at the old man for what he done to you? Well, he he was just doing his job. Hey. You're gonna take eight years out of your life, man. Six years? You said six. Hey, what the fuck difference does it make? You don't even care about it. Come on, man. It don't help it. Fuck help. I mean, fuck fair. Fucking justice. Don't you ever just want to fucking lomp and stomp on someone bite off their ear just to do it? I mean, just to do it, just to get it out of your system. That alone, I felt like it pretty much sums up everything you need to know about Badass's personality. His temperament, I should say. By the next day, when they leave D.C., They decide to take a detour to New Jersey and visit Meadow's mother. Unfortunately, this part of the trip doesn't go how they had hoped. Because by the time they get to her house, they find out that she's out for the day. They start to go inside. But as they're standing in the doorway, they see that the house is a mess. There's empty liquor bottles just sitting on the coffee table. So that was kind of a dismal glimpse into Meadow's life growing up. And the mood does shift after that. It does become more somber. The reality of what they're doing and why they're on this detail is setting in. Badass and Mule get into an argument on the train where Mule finally unleashes on Badass. No more of this head honcho bullshit. No more detours. Badass says He was just trying to show the kid a good time. And Mule says he can't have a good time. It ain't in him. So the next stop is Grand Central Station in New York. They get off the train and also passing through the station is a group of Marines. Badass doesn't say anything. He just stares them down the whole time, watching them as they all file into the men's room. Badass keeps staring at the doorway cigar hanging out of his mouth. So Badass takes off his shore patrol armband, goes toward the men's room. Mule asks him, where are you going? Badass turns around and says, head, turns back around. And after Badass disappears into the men's room, Mule pulls off his shore patrol band and when Badass gets inside the bathroom, walks in, glances around, two of the Marines are over at the sinks. So Badass goes and steps up to one of the urinals. Looks like he's lost something. We'd probably have trouble finding it with those 13 buttons. Yeah, well, if I was a Marine, I wouldn't have to fuck with those no 13 buttons. i just take my hat off. Mule and Meadows come into the bathroom too, and a big fight ensues. They are outnumbered five to three, and they still won the fight. Even Meadows gets one good punch in there and the three of them haul so much ass running out of that bathroom and through the station until they get outside and flag down a cab and i want you to notice something that is particularly picturesque about this sequence even though meadows is in front of them as all three of them are running meadows is not running from them as in he's not running from badass and mule the three of them just stomped on this group of Marines, and now they are running out of there as a team. And while they're still in New York, they go to a bar afterwards. Badass is throwing darts with some other guys there, and he's betting their per diem money. It seems like he's losing at first, but come to realize it's a hustle. So as they leave, Badass splits the money that he won three ways for himself, Mule, and Meadows. They're walking down the city street. Badass turns around and remember the signals that he was showing Meadows earlier? He signals to these guys back at the bar and Meadows is reading what he says as he's doing it. It's Bravo Yankee, Bravo Yankee. B-Y-B-Y. Why, in other words, Bravo Yankee, Bravo Yankee. Well, that was damn good, kid. You ought to put in for signalman. What's that? Oh, I hear it too. What the hell is an Indiana dog? God damn, that's the goddamnest thing I ever heard. <laughs> hey, let's go, <laughs> huh? let's go take a look. Let's go take a look. What the hell, eight years in a DD? <laughs> bizarre sound that they hear is coming from an apartment building. Meadows is intrigued by whatever this is, so he keeps following the sound. And they go inside, and they see a pile of shoes in the hallway. So Meadows tells them, take off your shoes. So they go in further, and they come upon this group of Buddhists, and they're chanting. And one by one, the members get up in front of the group and talk about why they started chanting and all the wonders that it has done for their lives. And let me ask you, my fellow fans of the original Saturday Night Live, did you notice who was in the group? We first see her kneeling down at the left-hand side of the screen. The last detail was the first on-screen role for Gilda Radner. And she does have a line. She stands up in front of the group and she says she's, she's really learned to love the clarinet and doesn't know why she was interested in the flute in the first place. And for anyone who's counting, it would be another two more years before Saturday Night Live would first premiere. Now, Meadows really gets into this chanting thing. Even after they leave, he's repeating this chant over and over. They go onto the subway, and he's chanting loudly. They take him to Rockefeller Center and let him ice skate. And then they're all having fun again. It seems the party started back up again when they got into that fight with the Marines. So they go to another bar afterwards. And Meadows is still chanting. And a woman... Donna, played by Luana Anders, overhears him. She comes over. She invites all three of them back to her place for a party. Now, when they get there, it's not much of a party, but there are girls there, so that is enough to at least keep badass interested. Everybody's smoking weed. Donna and Meadows are hanging out in the kitchen. She asks him if the three of them are on leave. He says No, and with a laugh as he's stuffing a sandwich into his mouth he says they're taking me to jail donna offers to help him get away to canada and it probably would have been really easy in that moment to do that but he declines and he says it would be their ass if he got away so donna takes meadows by the hand leads him through the living room and up a flight of stairs. It Looks like something's about to happen for him here. She gets him into her room. They sit on the bed. She slips off her shoes, looks at him, and then this happens. It's up to you. But I'm gonna chant for you. I'm gonna chant for you with my whole heart. get away. So he didn't get lucky, as you might have thought at first. She does, however, chant for him to get away. Our three guys the following day board a train headed for Boston, and Badass tells Mule, I think we need to get the kid laid. And that leads to what I personally think is one of the more memorable scenes. After they get to Boston, the three of them are piled into a cab, and Badass asks the driver if he knew where they could find the services of a good whorehouse. So he brings them to one. They go in, and they're greeted by the madam, We see a young lady come out of one of the rooms, followed by a client. This young prostitute is played by Carol Kane. We saw Carol Kane in one of our previous films. That would be Carnal Knowledge, where her role did not have any lines, but an important scene nonetheless. It was the slideshow scene. She is the young lady that Meadows chooses. And there's about five or so other girls in there. The reason why this scene is so memorable is because when she takes him into the room across the hall, at first it's very businesslike. She has him take off his coat and she sits down at this table and has him unzip so she can examine him first, I guess. She's rubbing soap onto a washcloth, so she's washing him beforehand. And While she starts to do this, I don't quite know how to say this, the fireworks go off unexpectedly. Um, The runner crosses the finish line. Um, The delivery comes early. The volcano erupts. The explosion rocks the earth. And after this, Situation, badass and mule come into the room, and they each pull out some cash and pay for Meadows to have a round two. And I don't care who you are, that is a couple of friends right there. By the next day, it's snowing. Each day, they get a little closer to Portsmouth. And before long, they're going to run out of the time that they have to get the prisoner there. The second to last scene is such a great scene. They're sitting outside in a park. Badass and Mule don't want to follow through with this detail because they know Meadows won't be able to handle it up in Portsmouth. Badass even says he doesn't stand a chance with all those Marines pushing him around. And he has a great line. He says, it takes a certain type of sadistic temperament to be a Marine. If you think about that for a second, for Jack Nicholson to have that line in what was still an early film in his career, and then when you realize 19 years later, he would have a very famous role in A Few Good Men, when you know that, and look back on it, it makes the moment very poignant. What you must remember about The Last Detail is that it is a comedy drama, like I told you at the beginning. There is something that I really like about dramas from this time period. It's that they have wit. Like I said, it's very clever. It's very witty. And I saw a quote from Jack, where he said, in regards to the director, Hal Ashby, he said, Hal is the first director to let me go. Let me find my own level. And I read, what I think he meant by that, was I read that Ashby would let Jack look through the viewfinder of the camera so he could see the frame of the shots, so he would know how big he could go in a scene and what parameters he had to stay within So it was really one of the first films where Jack had that level of freedom to do whatever he wanted within a scene. The film was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And nominated for Two Golden Globes, Best Lead Actor in a Drama, and Best Supporting Actor. And it is such a good standout film in Jack's early work for all the reasons that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. The last detail can be found on all platforms. You can find it streaming on demand as well as DVD, Blu-ray, and Amazon Prime. And I really suggest you get to know this one. Now, as I said, everybody, we are back in business I will be back here next week, and I will have a guest for my next episode, my good friend, filmmaker Melissa Torriero, and we will have for you our review of 1974's Chinatown. Until then, please subscribe to You Don't Know Jack wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com and find over 30 more great original podcasts. Until next week, guys, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.